Ministry of Community Bible Church of Beaufort on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. If you have a question as you've been studying the word of God that you want some help with, or maybe an issue you're facing in your church or ministry and you want biblical counsel on or your personal family life, if we can help, we'll do the best to point you to God's word. All you need to do is uh, pick up the phone, call us locally at 843-525-1859. 843-525-1859. When you call, you can go on the air uh, live or you can remain anonymous. A lot of people just uh, email us here directly into the studio and it will pop up on the screen. And that email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net. And uh, we're happy to receive it that way as well. Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started today. All right, uh, Pastor, we've got a couple of questions left over from last week. Uh, It was announced last week that Pope Francis had given priests the right to formally forgive women who have had an abortion during the year of mercy. Can't these women repent directly to God? We know there's forgiveness for all sin that is truly repented. And also, um, this past week, he, the pastor, the Pope, uh, said that he is in favor of a path to annulment of a marriage. What gives? Well, annulment is actually nothing really new in Catholicism. Uh, they like to use the word annulment versus divorce. They say, well, in an annulment, it wasn't a real marriage. It was just, uh, so to speak, a, a marriage that God didn't approve. And the church officially says, well, the marriage is annulled. We consider it like it never really happened. But this issue in reference to a woman experiencing forgiveness, again, all forgiveness comes from God. The Pharisees rightly asked of Christ, who can forgive sin about except God alone? And that's right. Only God can forgive sin. And of course, Jesus was claiming that ability. He said, so that, you know, the son of man has the capability to forgive sins. Get up and walk. He said to the paralytic, so only God can forgive sin and no man has the authority as a mediator between God and man, except Christ Jesus, who's the only mediator as the God man, uh, only God can forgive through Christ. And so the fact that this is the year of mercy, it's kind of silly. If you think about it, uh, there's days of mercy. There's hours of mercy. uh, There's minutes of mercy. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So God can forgive any kind of sin. Jesus, uh, when he spoke to the Pharisees, he said, God can forgive all manner of sin. There's only one unforgivable sin, and that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So one, I would just say, thank God that Catholics acknowledge that abortion is a sin and it is an evil and it is taking an innocent life. 
And you have to give them credit that their voice was being heard when a lot of evangelicals were sitting on the sideline after Roe v. Wade. It took evangelicals almost, you know, six or seven years to really catch up and to get out there in the forefront where the Catholics had already been. But lay that aside, uh, forgiveness is available to anyone for any kind of sin, year of mercy or not, and that's what the Bible teaches. So good question. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. We have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling. How can we be of help today? Hi. Um, my, my name is Jessica. How are you doing, Pastor Burby? Yeah. Hi, Jessica. <laughs> my question to you is, uh, Moses wrote the five books of the Bible. My question is, who wrote the part that uh, after Moses passed away, uh, him scraping a rock and him, you know, dying, who, who took over writing after he passed away if he wrote all five? I'm not saying that I'm saying that he didn't wrote the five books of the Bible. My question is, how is that possible when he died? Yeah, you know? no, it's a good, it's a good question. Uh, the Torah, uh, the Pentateuch, Penta being five, the Torah meaning laws, so... Uh, Jews uh, speak of the first five books uh, as the Torah, and Christ uh, ascribed Mosaic authorship to those five books, as do the Jews. They believe that Moses wrote those books. So Jesus could summarize the Old Testament by saying Moses and the prophets, or on another occasion, Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament. What Jews refer to today is the Tanakh, uh, the Torah, the Nephilim, the prophets in the wisdom literature, Ketuvim. Uh, and so the question really becomes the last chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, because Moses was writing the Torah. He had 40 years in the wilderness to write and record the events that took place. His death comes as recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 34 uh, God uh, called him up to Mount Nebo and uh, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan. And uh, he, he showed him the portions that he had promised to the nation of Israel. This is a land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. So he had a chance really to write in the truest sense all the way through Genesis 1-1 to Deuteronomy 33. Um, And then there on top of uh, the mountain, it says that he died and he buried, he, God, buried him, which by the way is a great argument for burial versus cremation. Uh, None of God's people ever are cremated in the Bible, the biblical pattern in both the Old and the New Testament is that of burial. Uh, uh, Burning the body, cremating the body, is really a a pagan practice of sorts. Uh, In either case, God performed the funeral service. And, of course, the Bible says he was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor was his vigor abased. So he either wrote these verses himself from a vision of the future that God gave him. Uh, So God prophetically spoke to his heart just as he, you know, moved him to write all five books of the Torah. Uh, Or uh, the last few verses were written by Moses. I mean, excuse me, by Joshua after the death of Moses. So, of course, what follows is the book of Joshua, and that's in chronological order. So the mantle is passed uh, by God's uh, 
divine sovereign plan from Moses to Joshua. And Joshua, of course, writes the book of Joshua. He could have very easily, by direct revelation from God, also have written uh, the final verses of the book of Deuteronomy. So the only question that we really have is the last chapter, which is uh, 12 verses long. And there's one of two possibilities. Either Moses wrote it, again, by a divine vision, or Joshua wrote it. Uh, If I had to choose one, I would say the the former, that Moses wrote it by divine vision. Why that, Pastor? Because, you know, Mosaic authorship is ascribed to the entire Torah by Christ. Uh, But it wouldn't be wrong to hold the position that Joshua could have written those. But because, you know, 99.99999% of it is still written by Moses, it would be proper to attribute the whole Torah to, to Moses. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. 525-1859, toll-free 877-924-7980, or email us at tdl at net. Our next caller dictated their question. They'd like to know, when elders pray over a sick person, is it scriptural to pray in tongues? Well, there's uh, only one case in the New Testament of the elders of the church praying over someone who is sick. And it's found in the book of James chapter five. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he, and it's a conditional statement in Greek, meaning he has, If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. It appears that the purpose of the elders specifically anointing this man with oil, setting him apart. There's no uh, medical cure that comes through the anointing of the oil. Uh, But the elders laying hands on him, so to speak, and anointing him with oil uh, is a picture of this man being or this woman, any person is generic this person being uh, restored into the fellowship of the church. In other words, there is some sickness that comes on an individual's life because they are under God's divine discipline. Uh, They are put out of the church and they have come under the discipline of the Lord, or they are just living in open sin as in first Corinthians 1130. And for this reason, some of you are weak, some of you are sick and some of you have even died. Paul says, So when a person recognizes, hey, you know, this is God's divine uh, discipline on me because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. It's not an expression of hate. It's really an expression of love because God so deeply cares for us. He does what's necessary to get our attention. And the most common expression of discipline is in the physical realm. That's not to mean that we go around as judges and say, oh, you got a little sore throat, Pastor? What's going on in your life? You know, um, we can't judge people. God alone knows the cause of sickness. And there are many other causes given in the Bible. Sometimes just because we live in a fallen world, people get sick. Or sometimes, you know, people are digging their own grave with a spoon. They have heart problems because they never choose to exercise or they eat French fries, you know, for lunch and bacon for breakfast and you know, just a, a, a terrible diet, you know, 90% of the time. So there are many causes for sickness, but one cause indeed is uh, that which is from the hand of God. So to get back to your the specificity of your question, 
in reference to, to, to praying in tongues. That has nothing to do with uh, a healing and the elders of the church seeking for healing. And of course, anyone, you know, we're all believer priests. But the reason the elders are called, no doubt, in this text is because this person is under divine discipline. And that's why he says, if he has committed sins, and it's a first-class conditional statement, much like when uh, Satan says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. He's not questioning that he's the son of God. He knows that he is. It's one way in which they uh, highlighted a truth. They underlined it in red. They pounded the pulpit was the way you formed a question. And the first class conditional statement is something that is assumed to be true. And we use those kinds of rhetorical questions and statements sometimes in English as well for emphasis. And so to to pray over in tongues, you know, it's just there's no basis for it. In fact, the tongues of today as people pray them, are really have no resemblance to the tongues that are found in the New Testament. And if it would be helpful to this caller, um, I have a course on what the Bible says about spiritual gifts. It's not for the faint of heart. It's, uh, it's over 100 pages long. It's offered through the Institute of Biblical Studies. In section six of that course, there's seven sections to it including a spiritual gifts exam that people can take. In fact, you can take that online if you go to searchthescriptures.org. But one of the things that we examine in one section are the sign gifts of the New Testament. There are four that are listed, the gift of tongues, uh, the gift of interpretation of tongues, healing, and miracles. And we try to understand those gifts today in light of what the New Testament records about them. So the gift of tongues, so to speak, that people claim they have today really resembles nothing to what we see in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it was a real language. The gibberish that people speak today is uh, mimicked by many cults that don't even believe in the deity of Christ or the doctrine of the Trinity. And so if spiritual gifts are only given to those who are born again, how do you explain that? Not to mention that centuries before the, the New Testament era came, there were Greek and Roman cults that spoke in tongues of sorts and ecstatic utterances. No different from what we have today. If, for the sake of argument, the gift of tongues is really being given today, then, you know, if Rick had that gift and I had the gift of interpretation, then I ought to be able to uh, hear his tongue and interpret it. And then you could find anyone else with the gift of interpretation. We could record Rick's tongue and they ought to be able to give the same interpretation. It's never happened. Never once. Why? Because what we have today is just nothing that resembles what we have in the New Testament. So it's really kind of a double faced question that you're asking and because there's several issues going on. But my suggestion to you would be to listen to section six, sign gifts in the New Testament on the spiritual gifts course. You could take the whole course or you could call search the scriptures, uh, go to the website and uh, order that. So anyway, I hope that helps. Let's go to the next question. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Sure. Uh, Pastor, um, I, I wanted some help from you. I'm considering um, some events in the Apostle Paul's life uh, where clearly there's uh, doors that God opens for him to walk through, some opportunities, and then other instances where it seems like God closed some doors 
and uh, and the letter uh, in Revelation, I think it's Revelation three, where Jesus says, "I'm the one who opens the door and no one closes. I close the door and no one opens." Uh, I'd like to get some help from you in understanding how we can know when God has opened a door of opportunity, and on the flip side, um, even though some doors may look great and wonderful, that actually it, it, it's not something that God is opening to us. How do we discern that? That's a great question. Uh, let me start with some general principles. First of all, the will of God never, ever, ever contradicts the word of God. That's something you can stand on. So a lady said to me one day, well, God's leading me to divorce my husband because he wants me to marry this man. Uh, That's not an open door from God. He's not saying close this marriage off and go start a new one. Why? Because I, the God of Israel, hates divorce. So the the word of God never contradicts uh, the will of God. The will of God never contradicts the word of God. A woman says, well, God's opened a door for me to be a pastor of a church. No, he hasn't. You've misunderstood that. Why? Because God doesn't call women to be pastors, just men. Men and women are equal, but the Bible teaches uh, the complementarianism of the sexes. While we are equal in our stature and our salvation and our worth before God, we don't all play the same roles. Just like in a family, there are parents. They don't play the same roles that the children do. The husband doesn't play the same role the wife does. And in the church, The office of elder is restricted to men. God calls men to be pastors. Why? Because he has a different ministry for women. There are some things only men can do in the church and some things only women can do in the church. So, so much of the open and closed door mindset just starts with knowing the word of God. We, We are meditating on God's word day and night and he'll use his word more than anything else. Now, uh, to give you a specific example, uh, Paul in Um, Acts 16, the second missionary journey commences and it says uh, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia and the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. So they're, they're going across uh, Europe there and they're expecting Uh, to have some uh, 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 going across uh, Asia and they're expecting to have some opportunities. They want to go north. They can't. They want to go south. They can't. God just closes the door. How did he do that? Whether, you know, it's very possible he just spoke directly to their heart, you know, and said, don't go there. And of course, this was at a time in human history before the Bible was, for the most part, written. It was being written at this point. Paul had just finished the first missionary journey And as of uh, the first missionary journey, at the end of it, before the Jerusalem Council, he writes a book called Galatians. Of the 11 books in the New Testament that Paul had written, that's the only one he'd done. Um, So most of the Bible had not been written yet. And so God was still speaking in many portions and in many ways and by direct revelation to the heart of his servant. Uh, So... um, They thought they had one plan, but God closed it. And sometimes, you know, we have a plan and as we start moving, God redirects us. And it's far easier for God to direct a moving object than one that's stationary. And um, the spirit of God, when they came to Troas, gave Paul a vision in the night. And there's a man in Macedonia 
who uh, he sees in a vision and he says, come on over here. And so he ends up going over to the province of Macedonia, to the city of Philippi. And for the first time, the gospel is opened in Europe. And Europe becomes the center of Christianity for the next thousand years. And God uses Europe in a profound and powerful way. So when you come to discerning God's will for your life, there are many factors. And one thing that you might want to do is go to my Acts series. If you go to searchthescriptures.org, in one of the um, questions that I ask and answer from the book of Acts, the first chapter is how to find God's will for your life. So I have a whole sermon on that. And I think you would find that really helpful. And I, and I use as a, a base of operations uh, the text in Acts 1, 12 through the end of the chapter, verses 12 through 26. But then I look at corollary principles in the Bible. For instance, um, if uh, there are many wise people in your life who are saying, you know, I, d- I don't think this is a good move for you then you should listen to that. That's not always a definitive answer, but it's certainly a major answer. Paul, you know, at one point wanted to go to Jerusalem and there was a prophet Agabus and he said, this is what's going to happen to you when you get there. They're going to bind you with this belt. And, and all the people assumed, well, since this was a man of God and he was a prophet, that God didn't want him to go because it was just going to mean trouble for him. But God wanted him to go and all the people begged him, don't go. And Paul says, I'm going. Why? Because he had a definitive word from God. Jesus appeared to him and he said, you're going to Jerusalem and you're going to represent me. So Paul knew didn't matter what kind of persecution I was going to face. God wanted me to go. I had a specific word from God. Now, again, the place for, for us to do that is the Bible. And this is why we need to be immersing our mind in the word of God. Uh, but again, if there's a lot of wise people in your life, and the scripture repeats in Proverbs three times that there's, uh, uh, you know, great wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And if all those counselors are dictating to you otherwise, you should take that into consideration. Uh, Paul says in Colossians, of course, it's, it's in a plural form, but I think you could take the principle and you could certainly apply it to the individual But he says in the book of Colossians, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And the word there for rule is actually the Greek word that comes directly into English as umpire. So the umpire has kind of the deciding call. And of course, he's speaking to the church at large when he makes this in terms of the spirit of the church and their sense of God's direction. But let the peace of God rule in your heart. And so sometimes you have a decision to make and there's just such a check in your spirit and so much trouble and you can't put your finger on it, but you just don't feel the freedom to move forward. Or the opposite is true. You do feel the freedom to go forward. And you know, of course, that it doesn't contradict the word of God in any specific way. Then then you, you either go forward or you don't. So you let the peace of God rule in your heart. So I go through a number of principles. If you will listen to that sermon from Acts 1, go to the book of Acts, click on that at searchthescriptures.org. I don't know. I preach maybe 50 sermons on Acts and click on the one in the second half of Acts 1. And uh, I think that will be of great help to you. I appreciate that question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Our next caller says that uh, she has heard people in different denominations and religions who say that we dishonor God the Father and God the Son by not calling them certain names. For example, 
Yeshua for Jesus. Is this true? No, it's not true. Um, You know, there are different names for God. Take different names for the Father. There's Adonai. There's Elohim. There's Yahweh. Uh, Which one do you call him by? Well, God himself used different names for himself. Um, If you go to certain Arab countries of the world where there are born again Arabs and they um, often refer to God as Allah. Oh, wow. You don't mean that, do you? Yeah, I do. Uh, Is that wrong? No, because they're Allah, the Allah of the Bible. The uh, the word in in uh, a number of languages for God is Allah. Uh, but the the Allah of the Bible is the different from the Allah of the Quran. So they're not worshiping the same God, though they may use the same name. Uh, the word Jesus, uh, Yeshua, in Greek, it would come through in English as Joshua, uh, or you know, Isus in in Greek. So you've got Yeshua in Hebrew, excuse me, and Isus in Greek, which is right. Well, it depends whether you speak Greek or Hebrew. And so it comes into a number of different languages in different ways. And so what we're really doing when we say, oh, we can only use the Hebrew uh, word for Jesus, Yeshua, then um, what do you do with all the times in the New Testament when his name is translated in Greek? They didn't translate the Hebrew. They, they translated the Greek word. Why? Because that was the receptor tongue of the readers. In Greek, of course, in God's providence, had become the language of the empire. And in the perfect timing of God, the cross was, uh, you know, took place. Jesus died in, in the fullness of time, the Bible says, when there was uh, the Roman peace, the Pax Romanus. There was a Roman road system and there was a universal language. And God in his providence allowed the gospel to spread through that setting that he himself had orchestrated. But again, you you would have to say that the writers of the Bible are wrong to come to that conclusion because the writers of the New Testament never once ever referred to Jesus as Yeshua, but they used the Greek word. And so all a language does is it asks, what word in our language best represents that Greek, that Hebrew, that Aramaic word, so that we can communicate um, what God is saying? There are a couple of universal words uh, in the Bible. Uh, For instance, hallelujah. That's in every language of the world, Uh, which means, of course, it's a Hebrew word that means praise the Lord. But that comes through in every language. Uh, Though technically in in Hebrew is hallelujah. There's a, there's a, uh, an aspiration at the beginning an H it comes through in English and in, in, in uh, Greek it's hallelujah. There's no H so to speak, but still it's kind of a universal word wherever you go in the world, whether it's India or China or, or Russia or Spain, it's, it's hallelujah, uh, which means praise the Lord. So good question. Appreciate it. Sometimes people get stuck on these little side issues that are meaningless and you picked up on that. So I'm glad you asked the question today. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello. I have a question about witnessing to someone with a cultural Islamic background. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're interested in learning about Christianity, but their basic 
confusion is uh, that there's only one God, and how can God have a son? So uh, considering the background of that person, they're not a cultural Christian who probably can can more easily accept that idea. Uh, How would you respond to that? It's a good question, and uh, I've witnessed to a number of Muslim people. In fact, last year when I was in India, uh, all the people that I spoke with were either Sikh, Hindu, or Muslim. In fact, I met people that had never even heard the name of Jesus, which, by the way, if those who are listening are interested, tomorrow night, Wednesday, I will be addressing the subject. What about those people who've never even heard the gospel? How does God deal with them? Someone who's never even heard the name of Jesus. The question that is sometimes asked by unbelievers to Christians, sometimes out of a sincere heart, sometimes simply as a smokescreen because they want an excuse not to believe, is this. How can God, if he's really loving and kind, send someone to hell for having never believed in the Savior of whom he's never heard? That's an important question that Christians need to know how to answer. So tomorrow night, Community Bible Church, I invite you out for that. But to get specific with your question, you're reaching someone with a different worldview. And by the way, the the thought of God being one, but not acknowledging his triunity is not unique to, say, a Muslim. Uh, There are many religions of the world that affirm that. They, we don't believe, of course, in three gods. We believe in one God. So we affirm the oneness of God, but we affirm also the triunity of his person, that there is only one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. So when you are uh, dealing with someone from the Islamic faith or that matter, any faith, it comes down to when you take all the air out of the balloon It comes down to an issue of authority. Has God spoken in an authoritative way? If he has, if there's a book that God has written, then I have a um, plumb line in which I can go and take any idea that I have and put it into the mirror of the Bible. And there's only one book that God wrote on planet Earth, and that's the Bible. There are characteristics that the Bible has, that the Quran does not have, that the Book of Mormon does not have, that the Upanishads, that the Hindus use, do not have. Uh, The Bible is a unique book. I wrote a little book. You can get it on Amazon. It's also in Answers in Genesis, one of their apologetic uh, volumes, and it's uh, how to prove the Bible is true. How do we know that God only wrote the Bible? And so I go through five infallible proofs that no other book can claim. Uh, For instance, fulfilled prophecy is one that I highlight, one of those five truths. The Quran has no fulfilled prophecy. The Book of Mormon has no fulfilled prophecy. Why? Because God alone knows the future. Now, there have been times in my ministry where, you know, I would meet, you know, maybe some college student. We worked at Chapel Hill for two years, at Duke for five years, and traveled to a number of campuses speaking across the country. And some college student would say, well, what about the prophecies of Nostradamus? He foretold the future. Not really. What he said was very, very vague, uh, could apply to 100 different situations. And, of course, he predicted that the world would end in 1999. 
uh, and obviously did not. So, you know, he was not accurate in his prophecies. And the things that he said could apply to 100 situations. The prophecies in the Bible are very, very specific. A Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. That's not some vague prophecy. That's, he's not, it doesn't say he's going to be born in a town. He's going to be born in a place called the House of Bread, Bethlehem. Uh, very, very specific. So there's over 300 specific prophecies concerning the first coming of Messiah. And every single one of those prophecies have been fulfilled. So it comes down to, has God spoken? And that's where you would want to begin to start to help this person to say, is the Bible the word of God? Is that the only book God wrote? Because if it is, then I can take any idea I have. Because remember, every idea you have is based on something. You either read it in a book, maybe a holy book, so to speak, though it's really not holy if God didn't write it. It's a deception. But you've either read it in a book or someone told you or you thought it up, though there's really nothing new under the sun. So in the truest sense, there's nothing original. Uh, But you have a basis for believing what you believe. The question is, is the basis accurate? And so is there a way by which I can discern? And becoming a Christian is not a foolish faith. It's based on solid historical evidence. And any thinking person can look at that. Well, people say, well, I just believe by faith the Bible is true. Well, again, it's not a foolish faith. If I said to you, I'd like to meet you next Tuesday at 11 o'clock and I showed up. Oh, good. I'm glad he kept his word. And I said the next week, I'd like to meet you again next Wednesday at at four o'clock. And I did it. And we went on like that for 10 weeks. On the 11th week, you'd say, well, you know, when the man says he's going to do something, he keeps his word. He means it. His, his word is reliable. And so you can show the reliability of the scripture. And then it comes down to what does the scripture reveal? The, the doctrine of the Trinity is certainly not unique to the New Testament. It's found in the opening chapters of scripture. It's not by accident that God uses a plural pronoun when he says, let us make man in our image, not let me make man in my image. Uh, you have in kernel form though not fully explained, but nonetheless in kernel form, the doctrine of the Trinity, even the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah said, a baby is going to be born. Oh, wonderful. What's the baby's name going to be called? Mighty God. A baby's coming, and the baby's name is going to be called Mighty God. Uh, There's the second member of the Godhead. Uh, You see the third member of the Godhead is the overshadows uh, the darkness and brings the creation of the world about. You also see his work in Job and other places. And so um, it's not in full blown form, but it's there. But God's revelation was progressive. He unfolded it over the course of 1500 years, that time frame in which the Bible was written. And now we have the full and completed revelation of God in the Bible. So that's where it always comes down to, you know, a couple of big questions like, is Jesus God? If Jesus is God, then everything he ever said is true. And is the Bible true? Um, and, and that's really the fundamental question, because everything that we know that's authoritative about Jesus comes from the Bible. And so is there a way to show that the Bible is true? So how to prove the Bible is true? It's on Amazon. I'm not here to sell the books. I don't make a penny on any of it. 
Um, but if it's helpful to you, it's a, it's a great little powerful argument that I think uh, has been useful to a lot of people. We offer a class on Sunday morning called the Discovery Class, which is a 45-week discipleship course. And part of that course is the 10 most commonly asked questions about Christianity. And that's one of them. How do we know the Bible is the only book we can call the Word of God? 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Mike from Brantford, Connecticut writes, Hello, I've been very confused over what appears to be a different gospel preached on most Christian radio stations. The majority of ministries seem to say we must repent, turn away from sin, uh, repent all sin, accept Jesus as Lord of the life, our lives, and be practicing righteousness to be saved, simply to imply conditional salvation. This appears to be another gospel, according to Galatians 1.8. Do you agree this is a false gospel? Why is this message so popular today? I became a Christian two and a half years ago by faith through the finished work of Jesus the Christ, but after a while, I fell um, under an online preacher that teaches the uh, doctrine we just mentioned. Over time, this had me questioning my own salvation, and if ever I was saved, uh, did I repent enough, etc. The Lord highlighted the following scripture that is not my righteousness, but his, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Romans 5, 1, Colossians 2, 11 to 14, Galatians 3, 3, and so on. And this showed me the error of the previous teacher, and I stopped listening to him. Shortly after, I found your ministry and have been greatly blessed. I've been listening to the Back to Basics series. Thank you so much. Well, it's a good question, and it's not a new question. It's a debate that goes back a long time. Uh, There was a major article done in the 1950s between uh, a man named Harrison and a man named Stott, John R.W. Stott, who just went home to be with the Lord a few years ago. And it appeared in Christianity Today, and it was a kind of a two-sided article, Must Christ Be Lord to Be Savior? And that's really um, what we're asking here. And so there are some ministries that I think many times in reaction to people who say they are Christians but show zero life change, that they tend to put a lot of emphasis on this, and sometimes to the point where it can become confusing. Now, when the Bible speaks of being saved by grace through faith and not by works, most of us can quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone brag or boast. But many times we leave out verse 10, for we are his workmanship Uh, The word here for workmanship is poema in Greek. We get our word poetry. You could paraphrase it. We are his poetry created in Christ Jesus uh, for good works or to do good works or unto good works as the King James renders it. So we're not saved by works, but we're saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so God is very clear that works do not save, but works are a definite fruit of salvation. And I think there was uh, several decades in the church, especially in the American church, where people said they were born again, but there was no life change. And I think a part of that was the way the gospel was presented. The gospel was presented in metaphors. Oh, you want to become a Christian? Just invite Jesus into your heart. Well, that's interesting. Where does it say that in the Bible? 
Uh, the closest thing you'll find is Revelation 3.20, where Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. He's actually not speaking of salvation. He's speaking in that verse about fellowship. He's speaking about intimacy with a church that was out of fellowship. And the Bible, of course, makes a distinction between our relationship with God, something that is eternal, and our fellowship with God, which is a moment-by-moment kind of thing. And so the gospel was preached in a lot of ways in metaphor, with no content. And so people made quote-unquote decisions, but their lives didn't change because they didn't really believe. And the reason they didn't believe sometimes was for the simple reason that they were not given the gospel. And so I meet people very often who um, made a decision and their life has never changed. And you ask them some basic questions and it becomes quite apparent that they don't even know what the gospel is. The gospel in their mind is to get saved. You invite Jesus into your heart. No, that's not how you get saved. That's a byproduct of salvation. Christ coming to indwell you in the spirit of Christ or in the Holy Spirit is something that happens after you're saved, but that's not how you're saved. You're called to believe in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. You're called to acknowledge that you are a sinner, that there's spiritual bankruptcy in your life, that you can do absolutely nothing to contribute to salvation, that none of the things you've done or might do will even help get you into heaven. That's what it really means to call yourself a sinner. And implicit in calling yourself a sinner is that you see it as wrong. And so if you don't really see it as wrong, then you're denying your sinfulness. Um, I, I had a little girl in my office recently and she told me she wasn't a sinner. Her mother about fell out of her seat. And, and I know what she meant as I probed her a little bit. She had never done anything really bad, so to speak. You know, never killed anybody. So no, I'm not one. Of, I'm, not, I'm not a sinner. Uh, but as she began to understand God's concept of sin, she realized she was a sinner. And so implicit in coming to Christ is coming to him for forgiveness and in coming to him to find forgiveness, a debt released, there is an admission that it's wrong and we want God to change it. But we want to be careful too not to front load the gospel because the word repent does not mean to turn from your sins. The word repent, metanoia, metaneo, the verb and the noun just means to, to change your mind or a change of attitude. That's what the word means. There needs to be a change of mind. And it's used in different ways in the New Testament. In Acts 2, brethren, what must we do? Repent, change your mind. You called Jesus just a man. You crucified him as a criminal. You didn't realize that he was more than a man, that he's the prince of life. Nonetheless, what you did was according to the preordained plan and foreknowledge of God, because God used it to purchase your salvation. But you've just called him a man and you've rejected that he was indeed Messiah, that he was the God man. So you need to change your mind. And so the word is used in different ways and in different contexts. Let's ask a basic question here. Is it possible to communicate the gospel without using the word repent? And of course, the simple answer, of course, would be yes. When Peter is asked, what must I do to be saved, so to speak? In one word, he says, repent. When Paul is asked, what must I do to be saved? In one word, he says, believe. They are really the flip side of the same coin. And so when God writes one book in the New Testament, 
whose explicit design and purpose is to bring about conversion and with that the life that comes with conversion. But we have a book that tells us this is why I'm writing this book and God couldn't have said it any plainer. Many other signs or miracles therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the gospel of John is written with an evangelistic purpose in mind. That said, does the word repent ever appear in the gospel of John? No, not once, not once, not ever. And yet this book is written to show us how we can be saved. Absolutely. So if you truly believe you've repented, you've changed your mind about your sin, that it's evil, it's wrong, it needs to be forgiven and changed, that you've changed your mind about Christ, who he is, about yourself, that you can't save. There's a change of mind that has transpired concerning sin, self, and the Savior. It always happens. Uh, The problem with some of these ministries, and again, it's it's a kind of a knee-jerk reaction because uh, they are just so frustrated, and I understand their frustration. God's not frustrated because God said this is going to happen. It's really not new, though it's become prominent in the last 40 years in the American church. It's not new because Jesus said at the end of the time, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, you know, when you use the person's name twice, Mary, Mary, Martha, Martha, you are saying to claim that you knew them in a personal way. Uh, You know, we knew you, Lord. In fact, we preached in your name. We did miracles in your name and cast out demons in your name. And Christ never discredits that they did those things. But nonetheless, he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. He never knew them. They never had a relationship with him. They are eternally lost. And Jesus said that will be the state, not of a few people, but many. And so he warns, wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many are those that are on it. Narrow is the gate. Small is the road that leads to life. Straight is the road you could render it. And few are those who find it. Sounds like out of the professing church, we have more going down than we have going up. So it's not a new thing. And again, when you deal with some of these Bible teachers who, again, I think out of frustration, uh, put this emphasis on repentance. You've asked the question here in your question. Well, how much do I have to repent? Well, you could ask that question. How much does Christ have to be Lord to be Lord? You know, Jesus has to be Lord in salvation. Well, how much Lord? Well, there are hundreds of exhortations and commands and prohibitions in the New Testament given to save people because there is an unfolding of the Lordship of Christ that takes place in our life after we're born again. And there's an assumption if I am a new creature in Christ Jesus, there'll be a desire to, to follow that. That doesn't mean that I can't rebel and God um, wouldn't discipline me. He can but again, if genuine faith has taken place, there is an assumption that I'm walking on the new straight and narrow, that there's a new desire to follow after the things of Christ because I have a born, uh, I have a regenerated heart. And so, again, there's not consistency here because when you read some of the material that these ministries put out and they're trying to win someone to Christ who's six, seven, eight years old, they don't talk about repentance. They don't talk about lordship salvation. Oh, question, does God have one gospel for adults and a different gospel for children? No, he does not. There's one message of salvation that a child can understand that an adult needs to understand. So we need to be careful not to muddy 
the grace of God with a works righteousness that I need to clean up my act to come to Christ. Actually, you can't because the one who sins is a slave to sin. But you come to Christ so that he can clean up your act. And there's a big difference between those two positions. Anyway, I appreciate that question from Jacob and Waco. Let's go to the next one. Alrighty, we uh, have adopted two of our children from Uganda and are in the process of adopting another little girl from there as well. Our next uh, listener writes, for our last adoption, we fundraised every cent. We had yard sales, dinners, made and sold things, did all kinds of things, and the money came in. We also received grants. Last week, you mentioned a little about fundraising, about it not being God's plan because the congregation should be giving to the fund the Lord's work. We just wanted to seek your advice on fundraising for adoption because we certainly believe that is the heart and work of the Lord, but not many people have $35,000 in an account to pay for adoptions. Should we not be fundraising and just trusting the Lord to provide? No, it's a good question. And what I was addressing in that sermon, I spoke on the issue of tithing, is that God's way to accomplish his work is through the tithe given to the storehouse, which under the New Testament is the local assembly. And so God doesn't want the local church to say, well, you know, we're going to, we need to raise some money for, you know, the annual budget. So everybody bring their junk to church next Sunday and we'll, we'll sell it here. And, or we're going to have a pancake sale or we're going to have a car wash or that's not really God's way of raising money for his work on the first day of the week as first Corinthians 16 as God gives increase as God prospers you and our increase is different. If a child earns a dollar, then his increase is a dollar and his tithe is a dime. If a teenager earns a hundred dollars, then that's his increase and his tithe is 10 and so forth. And the wonderful thing about it is whether it's the child who gives a dime, a tithe of a dollar, or the adult who gives a hundred dollars, a tithe of a thousand, they're both able as believers to lay up the same amount of treasure in heaven. And of course, giving is not simply an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. It's not like it's a 90, 10% relationship. Well, 10% of it's God's and I can do whatever I want with the other 90%. No, it's all God's. And I will give an account in my stewardship for all that he's entrusted me, all the material possessions. And Jesus exhorts us to be good stewards because he said, if you're not faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who's going to entrust true riches to you? In other words, there's a correlation between our use of the things that God has given to us and our ability to invest in things that really matter, things that are eternal, things that live far beyond this earth once it's burned with fire. So God has really given a pattern as to how his church is to uh, have it funded whether it's in the Old Testament, dealing with the Levites and the ministry that they have, or whether it's under the New Covenant. And I believe the starting place is the tithe, because God speaks also of the offering, which is not a percentage amount. It's an issue of the heart, just like there are other issues of the heart. God said, look, when you uh, harvest your fields, uh, leave the edges and the corners in your compassion for the alien and the orphan who don't have anything. And remember too, once you were aliens in a land and you didn't have anything. And so have compassion in your heart. And I suppose how big a man's edge was and how big his corners were, were an expression of how generous his heart was. But God doesn't ask the, the church to go out to the world to fund his work. That's not his method. We're not saying, Hey, come on in here world and help us with, so we can send missionaries overseas. No, 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 no. 
God's given you a job. Now, what you're talking about is entirely different. You're talking about you want to adopt a child that costs $35,000. So you're trying to make money. That's, that's what you do. So you have a yard sale. That's not the church having the yard sale. That's you. What are you trying to do? You're trying to make some money. You've got some assets that you want to sell to generate some liquid cash so that you can go through the adoption process and you have a yard sale and you make $100 and you give $10 to the Lord's work and you put $90 in your adoption fund if that's what God's leading you to do. That's far different. That's no different having a yard sale than you're going to paint a house or be a plumber or a doctor or whatever skill or ability or methodology God has given you to bring about increase. So anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. Okay, I think we've got time for this one. We are currently praying and looking for a new church home. We understand the principle taught in 1 Timothy 2.12, but our question is an applicational one. It seems like every church we visit has what seems to be an unbiblical model for the ABF or small group ministry. The teachers are always a husband and wife where the wife shares in the teaching role. It's frustrating to see uh, this when we're trying to desperately honor God and his word. Could you offer some advice as a pastor on what we should do? We need and want to be members of a healthy local assembly and would like to become plugged in. So do we just skip the ABFs? Well, again, um, make sure that you've really explored it well, uh, that you've uh, visited a number of churches. You may go to one or two and you find that they indeed have women teaching over men, a couple where he takes half the class, she takes the other half, and she's teaching on the same level that he is, which is clearly a violation of Scripture. The principle that God gave very clearly applies to his church. Just like uh, you can't say, well, that just applies in the worship service and it doesn't apply in the ABF or a home Bible study. Yes, it does. That would be like saying in the prior verse, when God speaks about women who are coming into the church dressed modestly or dressed extravagantly to call attention to themselves, that that only applied in the assembly. No, it's just as wrong for a woman to go to Walmart today and in modest clothing as it would be to come to the church service tomorrow night. So uh, Christian churches need to think through this issue because we live in a day where the roles of men and women are being obliterated. And this has opened the door for all kinds of weird, uh, damning doctrines that people are adopting, whether it's homosexuality or transgender behavior or whatever it is. When you reject God's roles in one area, you will be quick to reject them before long in another. But find the best Bible-believing church you can get in and support it. And, uh, you know, you might, uh, you don't want to go in there as a divisive factor. There are many people who think they're really doing what's right. To him who knows to do right and does it not, to him it is wrong. To him it is sin. And so if you know the right thing, if you know, well, the Bible is clear on this issue, and you rebel against it, then you're in sin. And so there are some couples who think they're doing the right thing, but they're really not. And so there might be an opportunity to kind of challenge their thought and say, hey, have you thought about this? And have you considered this factor? And if someone's listening, they want to explore this. I just preached a couple messages recently that are online on the roles of men and women at the church at either communitybiblechurch.us or searchthescriptures.org. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us. Have a great day. 